Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello and welcome to another episode of Matafile, where today we speak to Miss Elena Deloja, who is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and a fellow at the Washington Institute. In this conversation, we do an in-depth stakeholder analysis analyzing bilateral and multilateral relations of all actors within the Yemeni conflict. The conversation comes off the back of the publication of the Yemen Matrix by Elena, which is an excellent preview to understanding the relationships of people acting in the Yemeni crisis. In the conversation, we of course touch on the usual suspects of the Southern Transitional Council, the Houthis, the Hadi government, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but alongside those, we also end up touching on a lot of other actors you might not have heard of in the context of Yemen, or just those that you did not think played as significant a role as they do. If you haven't already, please do like, subscribe, and follow us, and please do leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here's our conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matifile, where I've had the pleasure of being joined by Miss Elena Deloja. Miss Deloja is the Rubin Family Fellow in the Bernstein Program on Gulf and Energy Policy at the Washington Institute for Near Eastern Policy, where she specializes in Yemen. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. For all of you who do not know Elena, She's just published this thing called the Yemen Matrix on the Washington Institute website. And I will link the Yemen Matrix to this episode, but I would encourage all of you to go onto Google and just search it up. Because in my opinion, it is the single best matrix or single best chart that captures bilateral relationships within the Yemeni conflict today. And not only does it include the major actors, which are the Houthis, the Southern Transitional Council, and the Hadi government, but it also includes a bunch of other actors that I didn't in fact, no existed or played legitimate role. So I think I want to start there with, with the several actors that are involved in the conflict itself. And starting with, of course, getting rid of the big dogs or the, the usual suspects, which are the Hadi government, the Houthis, and the Southern Transitional Council. We have an episode on the Houthis, the Hadi government I've spoken a bit about, and the Southern Transitional Council are a recent movement that has reignited after the unification of Yemen in 91. I want to start about the other internal actors in the conflict itself who stake the claim to Yemen or to a movement in Yemen and a movement or, or a legitimate hold of some part of Yemen. And I just want to ask you about who these people are, why they have a claim to legitimacy, and how they fit into the larger conflict at hand. So I think the easiest place to start is with GPC Sana, because it is the political party that was set up by um, the predecessor of Hadi. So who are GPC Sana'a and how active are they now? What is their claim to legitimacy in Yemen? 
Yeah, so there, you're right that there are a lot of actors in Yemen, and even drilling it down to 12 was hard. I was going to try to do 10, and I just couldn't, I couldn't leave any of the ones I included out. So even getting down to 12 was, was hard enough, and you could easily have 20. So uh, Yemen is just a very complex country, and everyone knows each other in Yemen. So they, and they all have these long histories. So all the situations that are unfolding in Yemen today, including the current war, but there's also, you know, aspects to that war. It's not one thing. There's actually, you know, it's five or six different uh, things, kind of dramas unfolding at once. And these are, these are things that have a history. You know, this, this is, this is not a war that just broke out randomly. Um, and in addition, they're not histories that are, uh, and I say this in my introduction of the Yemen matrix, they're not histories that are like ancient hatreds. We oftentimes, you know, love to think of the Middle East as this place where these ancient hatreds are playing out and people are killing each other over things that happened in the 1400s. And that's just not actually what's happening in Yemen. The, the, if there is a hatred in Yemen, it's actually born of events that happened in people's lifetimes. So you mentioned, uh, you know, there was the unification of North and South Yemen in 1990. There was a war in 94. There was a war in the South in 86. There was a war in the North in 62. There were, so these are things that are within people's lifetimes. Um, and so that's why you get this sort of disparate group of actors who all have relationships with, they all know each other um, and all have relationships with each other. Um, and so to your question about the GPC specifically, so they're one of two actors in the matrix that are political parties. So uh, the GPC is sort of the old guard political party of President Saleh, who was president of Yemen for 33 years. Uh, and this was his political party. Uh, and then you've got ISLA, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but ISLA is the counterpart. So it's nothing at all like Democrats and Republicans, but if you think of it, if you want like an analogy, it's like the two, the two main political parties of Yemen. There's others as well. Um, so we should be clear that they aren't the only two political parties, but they're the two really big ones. So the GPC is currently based in Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen, and Sana'a is currently controlled by the Houthis. And so the GPC has decided to um, stay on the Houthi side of the war. Now they've done that because they are against, in principle, the, the Saudi-led coalition bombing Yemen. So their perspective, the political, you know, perspective is that uh, there are outsiders bombing our country and we are standing up to those outsiders. Now, we can get into lots of details about what the relationship with Houthis is like and, and, and uh, is that a trade-off for them and all sorts of things, but that's the narrative of the party. And they've stayed in Sana'a and stayed allied with um, the Houthis even after the Houthis killed Salah who was the leader of their party. Um, so that's the very quick story of the, of the GPC. You mentioned that they're still in Sana'a, but, and they are favorable towards the Houthis because the narrative they perpetrate about Saudis being evil or the Saudi-led intervention being bad for the people of Yemen. Was that circumstantial in that, were they, did they align with the Houthis because the Houthis took over Sana'a and they were just, they happen to be located in Sana'a. So it just makes sense to align with the people that have taken over your city. Or is it more than that? Is it, do they actually buy into the message of the Houthis? Well, so any of these groups are not monoliths. So I think that there's probably some members that buy into a certain set of messages and other members that don't. So, you know, as a, they're not the Houthis, they are a separate entity. And so it is the, the Houthis and the GPC are not one ideology by, by any stretch. Um, in fact, the GPC was, has, is often characterized as like a non-ideological political party, meaning that they were, that the political party was formed as sort of a, a political party for Salah, but it wasn't ideological. It wasn't an Islamist political party. It wasn't a populist political party. It didn't have, you know, a, an ideological underpinning. Uh, and the Houthis are, uh, to a large degree, ideological. And so that is a core difference between the two. 
Now, as for when they allied, it was not so simple as like the Houthis took over Sana and suddenly everybody picked sides. I mean, it wasn't so black and white. It was, there was a, a, a process that happened. So when in 2011, as folks might recall, there was the Arab Spring in a lot of countries. And so the Arab Spring also broke out in Yemen. And as a result of that, President Saleh was forced to step down and President Hadi came to the fore. Uh, and then President Hadi went about basically dismantling the old, you know, system of loyalty that Saleh had built, which was primarily a GPC system. And so there were already sort of, you know, there. In, that's just one example, but there were things sort of happening politically in the years up leading up to this war. Uh, that led the GPC to make a series of choices um, where they ended up on the on the Houthi side. I think the most interesting thing, thing for me that I caught on to from that statement was just that the GPC is a non-ideological political party while the Houthis are ideological parties, which is already a quick introduction to the fact that the conflict itself is not purely ideological, but it is. it has a lot more to do with maybe opportunistic economical political entities or just geopolitical entities that are not necessarily born of a religious ideology. Uh, you mentioned the second big political party in the matrix is the Isla Riyadh. Who are the Isla Riyadh and who do they align with? So Isla is a, a large political party in Yemen that I in the matrix I refer to Isla and Riyadh. So the reason they they're not called Isla Riyadh, they're called Isla, but I'm saying it's the the part of Isla that's in Riyadh because what I should have mentioned with the GPC is that you know one of the effects of this war is that both political parties have fragmented. So there's the GPC in Sana who are aligned with the Houthis, but there's also former GPC members who still consider themselves GPC members, including the vice president of Yemen, uh, who are on the Hadi government side or who are on neither side. Uh, so even like the Saleh family, for example, uh, they are obviously GPC member. I mean, they were the sort of vanguard of the GPC. And when the Houthis killed Saleh in 2017, the family defected from that camp, but they can still consider themselves GPC at their core. So the point is the, the party is fragmented and the same is true for Isla. And so the, the project by no means captures all of what Isla is or means to Yemen. Um, and I mentioned this in, in the project in terms of why that choice was made, but is the core leadership of Isla uh, who the kind of elected leadership of the party sit in Riyadh and are on the side of the coalition. But there's a, a massive faction of Islahis who in uh, who were in the streets protesting in 2011 as part of the Arab Spring and all of that. There's a, there's a contingent of Islahis who do not support the coalition's war in Yemen right now. Uh, and many of those folks actually disagree with the core leadership in Riyadh um, and so, again, the party is quite fragmented. So the core is Isla leadership that sits in Riyadh is, of course, supporting the, their city in Riyadh. So by, by kind of extension, they're supporting the, um, the coalition efforts. And they're also, there's a number of folks from Isla who are in the government, in the Hadi government, you know, cabinet positions in the parliament, that sort of thing. So, um, so that's sort of where they, they sit today. And are the Islahis an ideological politi uh, political party or are they also non-ideology centric? Well, so Islah was created originally, uh, and I'm sort of oversimplifying history a little bit here, but they were created in 1990 in part to less to be an opposition party to the GPC and more to be an opposition party to the Yemen Socialist Party in the South. So when unification happened in 1990, uh, the, the Yemen Socialist Party was the, the main party of the South. Uh, it was a communist party. And so ISLA was set up basically in reaction to that. So in reaction to the sort of communist um, ideology, 
which was, you know, the fear was that it was an atheist ideology and it was a, we're going to come take your land ideology, you know, a national, there was a lot of, you know, land grabs in the South and nationalization of land. And so it was in opposition to all those sort of quote unquote communist ideas. Uh, and so when, so what Islam, Islam is oftentimes referred to as like the Islamist political party. And that's, kind of true in the sense that they the muslim brotherhood is a part of islam so islam is an umbrella group in the same way that the republicans are an umbrella group in the united states there's multiple elements if you said who's in the republican party you can't just say one group it's multiple different types of people um, with a, a little bit of a common thread uh, and so Islaw is very similar to that. So there were some tribesmen from the north who who joined Islaw. It was run by a, a major tribal family. There were business people that joined Islaw. Um, there were also Salafis, which is the religious element. Uh, and also uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was a part of Islaw, um, which is another religious element. So it's really a a kind of umbrella party. And to make it more confusing in the Yemen context, they then joined a party called the Joint Meeting Parties, which was an umbrella of multiple other groups. So it kind of is a, a, a little bit of a, like a Russian dolling of, um, of political parties. But you, it, you certainly can't say Islam is one thing. It's not, it's not like a monolithic, you know, um, uh, it's just not a monolith, just like everything else in Yemen. From that story, though, the one relationship on the Yemen matrix that intuitively suddenly starts making a lot of sense is the opposition or the oppositional nature of the Islahis to the SDC and Southern Transitional Council. Is that because the Southern Transitional Council still espouses the socialist views of the Southern Yemen that were part of the unification in 1990? I would say that Islah and the STC's history, it's one of the most complex on the Yemen matrix uh, and one of the hardest ones for me to write succinctly. Um, But I think the key events in their history are really what matters. So, you know, the the Yemen Socialist Party still exists. uh, And so I think it's a little of an oversimplification to suggest the STC is sort of the manifestation of the old communists. I think, I don't think it's, I don't think that's a one-to-one comparison at all. But um, they certainly remember each other in terms of, you know, in 1994, when there is a civil war, the folks who are part of the STC today are the separatists, right? The, one, of the, one of the angles of the STC is that they want secession. And so they, those folks, assuming they felt the same way in 1994, maybe a few people have changed their minds, but though that same mentality in 1994, those people were the people fighting for Southern independence. And ISLA was fighting on the North to prevent that. Um, and uh, there's a perspective on, the, on behalf of many Southerners in Yemen that, uh, that these sort of Islahi armies are these Northern dominant armies coming to kind of take over the South, right? To, to Northern dominance of the South is an allegation that the, some of the Southern secessionists throw at Isla a lot. Um, in addition, they, they tend to characterize Isla as an ideological Islamist party. There's a lot of accusations. There's accusations uh, among many of the parties in Yemen as to, you know, who's with Al-Qaeda kind of stuff. But one of the primary accusations from the STC is that Islam is working with Al-Qaeda. And so this just gives you a sense of like the um, enmity that exists between them, that it's serious enough that one is accusing the other of being tied to terrorism. And so that's, and this comes from that sort of long history of the the two parties together. There's been multiple kind of points along the line of history where they've clashed. This makes sense now, now that you've explained it. There are two actors on the Yemen matrix, though, that aren't actually as large as the political party that we've been talking about, that I'm slightly confused about how they fit in and why they are such significant actors. One is Ali Mohsen, and the other is the Saleh family. Why are both these actors still relevant in the Yemeni context? Because I thought that the Saleh family 
were done with their network since the death of Sully and Ali Mawson similarly after the Arab Spring. Yeah, so this was, you know, including them is a choice that uh, some people might disagree with um, and some people have disagreed with. Uh, but the reason I chose to include them is because I wanted to separate Ali Molson out from the Hadi government, although he's a part of it as the vice president. But because the relationship he has with other groups on the matrix is different than the relationship they have with the Hadi government and oftentimes worse. So for example, Ali Molson was the commander of the war against the Houthis from 2004 to 2010. Hadi was not, I mean, he was vice president at the time, but he wasn't really that involved. So, and the Hadi government, quote unquote, didn't exist back then. So the relationship the Houthis who fought a war with Ali Molson have with Ali Molson is different than the relationship they have with the Hadi government kind of writ large. And so separating out Ali Molson was less of an indication that he is, um, you know, not the, the, the groups in the chart are not all equal by any stretch. Um, but it was just an attempt to kind of separate that out and point out that he, he is a highly controversial figure in Yemen and he has a very, very long history in the country. Um, and everybody has an opinion on him. And so I thought it was important to sort of highlight those. On the Saleh family, you know, if Saleh was still alive, he would obviously be on the chart, even if he wasn't president. I, I would say the same for one of the top sheikhs in the north, a guy named Sheikh Abdullah. Um, if he was still alive, I, he would be on the chart. Uh, and so, you know, I debated on whether to add um, the Saleh family or not, but I think it's important because they loom large over Yemen. Uh, everyone's sort of paying attention to where they are at any moment in time. And also, um, Tarek Saleh is one of the commanders on the Red Sea coast. He has a good relationship with the UAE and the Saudis. He's very prominent in the war. And so, you know, whether to include him by himself or to include his military unit or to in include him as part of the Saleh family. So there are all these sorts of choices in terms of how do I capture the main players? Um, do I do they stand on their own? Are they part of a group? Like how do I capture them? And so, um, so these are the the choices I made. But the two names with the Saleh family that come up the most often are Tariq, and then also Ahmed. Um, Ahmed Ali is Saleh's son. He's sitting in Abu Dhabi now, uh, and he was you know under some form of house arrest for a while. And he's still under sanction, uh, but he isn't, um, he'll release a statement every now and then, but he is not a, a, an active public political figure, but he is someone whose name comes up a lot in terms of people just saying like, I wonder what Ahmed will do after the war. Like, I wonder if Ahmed's coming back. I wonder, so I think that because the Saleh family looms large in conversations on Yemen, I think it's important to kind of, you know, explain who they are and where they stand. I think the last internal party that I did not intuitively think played a significant role in the conflict, but you've included them in the matrix, are the Mahari protesters. Uh, so again, who are the Mahari protesters uh, and why is Oman involved in the conflict? Yeah, so this is a good question. So the Mahari protesters are a small group, um, but uh, they're their inclusion is more representative of a storyline that's unfolding in Yemen, which is that the Saudis went into the province of Mahra, which is on Oman's border in 2017, in order to, um, they said that they were going in to stop smuggling to the Houthis. They alleged that Iran was smuggling missiles and other equipment to the Houthis through Mahra province. Now that could either mean over the Omani border or it could mean from the coastline. And so they have sent uh, military forces in to monitor the border checkpoints and the border in general, even where there aren't checkpoints, and then also to monitor the coastline. So that's been the Saudis reason reasoning. Some of the local population has been against that uh, presence and the protesters of that presence call it an occupation. So they claim the Saudis are occupying Mahra. 
and they point to things like, you know, do you really need this many forces, you know, hundreds of people for counter smuggling, like it's seen, you know, why is there so much military equipment here if you're just doing counter smuggling? So these are the kinds of narratives that uh, exist in the region or in the province. And the reason this matters is because it's on the border with Oman. Uh, and Oman has generally had a very good relationship with many of the Maharis. So has Saudi, to be honest. In the northern parts of Mahra, which borders Saudi, there's a lot of folks that have Saudi passports even. And in the lower parts of Mahra, Oman has uh, quite a, um, a relationship with those folks and many of them have Omani passports. And so it's just kind of an interesting uh, region and given that there's been this protest movement that has developed and the Saudis also, I think Mahra is also important because the Saudis are putting a lot of their development attention on Mahra. Um, there's also accusations by the protesters, but others as well, that there's a lot of Salafi schools or there's a Salafi school that is suddenly very prominent in Mahra that wasn't there before. And so there's just sort of a lot of local concerns um, and they're manifesting in this, this protest movement, which is honestly a small movement, but has gotten into scuffles with the Saudis. Um, and, uh, and so I thought it was important to sort of highlight, it comes up in every meeting on Yemen. So I felt like it was important to explain and highlight, um, you know, what's going on in Mahra. Of course. And are the Mahri protesters similar to the SDC in that are they demanding succession from Yemen and joining Oman? Or are they just demanding a security concern that Saudi leave that occupied territory? Yeah, so it's more the latter, that they right. just want the Saudis to leave and leave them alone. And, you know, the guy who is running the protest movement used to be the head of border operations. Uh, I think he was the deputy governor for border affairs or desert affairs, where he was basically in charge of the border. So the Saudis accuse him of being one of the problems behind smuggling. And he was dismissed from his post when the Saudis came in. So there's, so there's, you know, these complications in the, the sort of struggle um, between the two positions in the province. Uh, but there's certainly no, the Mahris are not looking to um, secede or to join Oman. That's not that's not on the table. And in fact, they, they are quite opposed to the STC and actually, and actually support uh, unity. I think the really important point for the protesters is that they are, they're very sort of Mahra first kind of, it's almost like a nationalist except um, a provincialist, I guess, um, perspective, but just sort of a, a kind of leave us alone mentality. Um, and they, but they certainly see their relationship with Oman as their most important relationship regionally. And so they definitely prioritize that over, you know, a relationship with, they want to maintain that relationship with Oman for sure. Makes sense. And I want to transition now from the internal political conflict of Yemen to looking at the external actors that have been included in the matrix but also those that haven't because they aren't in the immediate neighborhood of Yemen itself. So looking at other foreign actors like the U.S.'s involvement in Yemen itself. But first to address the three big actors that I can see here, which are Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Saudi, we've spoken a bit about. The big question then comes about Iran. Is Iran's involvement ideological in that do they support the Houthi movement for ideological purposes? Or is it more geopolitical in nature? Do they see Yemen as a winning chip on the Arabian Peninsula? I think it's a combination of those things. So it depends on sort of what you mean by ideological. But let me suggest that I think it's politically ideological as opposed to religiously ideological. So let me explain what I mean. So very broadly and, and in a bit of an oversimplified manner, but just for purposes of, of sort of explanation, there's basically two camps in the Middle East. There's one camp that thinks that the uh, the Iranians are the destabilizers in the region, that their, you know, quote unquote, export of the revolution is very dangerous. Their support to groups like the Houthis and Hamas and Hezbollah um, threaten the security of Israel, threaten the security of the Gulf states, and that Iran is the destabilizer. And that is the view of the United States, the Gulf states, Israel, etc., broadly speaking. Then there's this other point of view, which is that the U.S. and Israel are the destabilizers in the region. And though the people who subscribe to that view often believe that the Gulf states are basically puppets of the United States, which is 
defer too deferential to Israel. So there's this sort of idea that the, the Israelis and the Americans are the destabilizers in the region. And they point to things like the Iraq war invasion and things like that to, to suggest. And so that is Iran's point of view, but also Hezbollah's point of view, Hamas's point of view, and the Houthis point of view. And so I would say that the Houthis and Iran share a kind of political ideology or a political perspective on the region. Um, they're also both very, you know, outwardly pro-Palestinian and again, coming from that Israel is the problem, you know, perspective. So they share that sort of mentality. And I think that is what draws them together more than, you know, they're both Shia. And I say that because they are both Shia Muslim, but they're different brands of Shiism. So there's there's Twelver and there's Fiverr, and we can get into it if you'd like. But the but the point is that there are different sects of Shiism, uh, and so it's it wasn't like a you know kumbaya we're both Shia let's come together. I think that it was more that the Houthis were a rebel group that is based on Saudi's border. So of course they're in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, sort of in the center Western part of the country now, but they're from the Northern part of Yemen, right on Saudi's border uh, or an area near Saudi's border. And so uh, when they were uh, originally at war with the Yemeni government it, in the 2000s, it, the war was happening on Saudi's border. And so at some point Saudi entered the war there were people sort of sneaking into their territory to launch attacks and they didn't really love that. And this war kept going on and on and on. And so the Saudis finally entered the war. Uh, and I think Iran saw that as an opportunity, you know, Oh, there's some sneaky, you know, rebel group on Saudi's border harassing the Saudis. Like where do we send the check? You know? <laughs> so, so I think that's how it started. And then of course in the Arab spring, you know, that created an opportunity for, Iran to sort of put out some tentacles as well. And Iran has has put out its tentacles in Yemen before. Um, there's other groups that have taken Iranian support that are not the Houthis. Um, and so, you know, it just so happened that, you know, the Houthis in Iran, we, we ended up, it's kind of a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, there are many of us for years saying, the longer this goes on, the closer the Houthis in Iran get. And that's that's exactly what's what's happened. So that's how I would explain their relationship. I know, I know, and it's a lot more complicated than we can possibly cram <laughs> into the space of a single podcast. And I'm sorry, I'm making you do this again and again for every single actor, but I'm going to no, keep doing it's, it. No, it's great. It's great. Yeah. But I'm going to keep doing it. And the next country is, of course, the United Arab Emirates, whose entry coincides in the conflict. Of course, they have been outward allies of Saudi Arabia for quite a while because their camp in the Middle East is very similar to the camp of Saudi Arabia, as you just described earlier. But their involvement in the conflict, correct me if I'm wrong, came in with the start of the Southern Separatist Movement because they are the major funding source for the Southern Separatist Movement. Has this strained ties between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates? And why did UAE make the voluntary decision to support a party in Yemen that the party that Saudi Arabia backs does not like? Okay, so I'll try to unpack that. Great question. So when the war started, the Saudis wanted to go after the Houthis. And what happened is the Houthis, as soon as they took over Sana'a, they went south and took over Aden, which is the southern capital. So President Hadi fled Sana'a to Aden. Then the Houthis came into Aden. He had to flee Aden. Uh, again, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that, that's the general idea. And then what happened is the coalition, uh, led by Saudi, but including the UAE, um, went and pushed the Houthis back from the south. Uh, and the UAE was the primary sort of boots on the ground coalition actor to do that. Uh, and so the UAE did a series of, you know, assaults and they, they led, you know, a series of sort of military campaigns to push the Houthis out of the South. And so the people who fought the Houthi incursion into the South, many of them were the people who fought the last quote unquote Northern invaders in 1994. 
right? Again, that's their perspective, right? So, so there are a lot of the Southern secessionists, many of them were the people who were helping to push the Houthis out. So were people who are are Southerners who are pro-unity. I mean, nobody wanted the Houthis in the South. So everybody worked together to sort of push the Houthis out. And in the, the process of doing that, the UAE developed relationships with certain, you know, groups that were particularly good at, you know, fighting. And they ended up uh, maintaining these relationships over time. Um, and so they also, the a lot of the secessionists who ended up becoming part of the STC. Now, at this time in 2015, 2016, the STC did not yet exist. It was formed in 2017. But the people who are in it existed uh, and were secessionists at the time. Um, and many of them were also people who had done counterterrorism work, very anti-Al-Qaeda, uh, and had been doing a series of, of counterterrorism operations independent of the, the war. And so to oversimplify a bit, the UAE went into South Yemen and said, who are the best fighters out here? Who can we support? you know, in our effort to support the coalition and in our effort to counter terrorism. And many of those people that they found happened to be the people who became the STC and the secessionists. Now, at some point in time, the UAE would have realized that, right? And, uh, and, and realized that, oh, the guys were supporting us fighters happened to also be secessionists, which mean, which means by sort of extension were supporting people who believe in secession. So, so there was, you know, that became obvious at some point, but I think at least in the beginning days, the way it happened was a little bit slightly more organic. So it was not the UAE saying we're pro-secession, we're coming in to, to create a political organization that is pro-secession. That was not how it sort of happened. But as it's evolved, why has the why have the UAE just continued supporting them despite Saudi Arabia being quite antagonistic towards the SDC? Why has you why have the UAE not just stopped supporting the SDC? Well, so I would actually disagree that the Saudis have been antagonistic towards the SDC because it's it's definitely true that you know they would like the SDC to make up with the Hadi government. So what's happening in the South is essentially the you know the Hadi government is being forced to run itself out of Aden. They would prefer to be in Sana, of course. Um, Hadi himself is a southerner, uh, and he was part of a civil war in 1986 that many of the people uh, in the STC were on the opposite side of. And so there's some historical tensions between Hadi and the folks that make up the STC that are sort of underlying all of this. But essentially, the Hadi government and the STC, and the Hadi government includes members of ISLA, which the STC points out a lot, um, they, they kind of collectively fought the Houthis. But as soon as the Houthis were pushed out from the south, then, of course, the secessionists started to sort of pursue their secessionist ambitions. And because they, you know, did have weapons and money and all the rest from the UAE as part of their counterterrorism and, and anti-Houthi fight, you know, they were able to, to set up this organization that, um, uh, that they have. And many of the STC people are, as you noted, based in Abu Dhabi. Now, the Saudis tend to support the sort of legitimate government, um, you know, anywhere. Like we could come up with an exception. But broadly speaking, the Saudis try to support the legitimate governments in various countries, like the UN-backed sort of governments. And so they support the Hadi government, they support the Hadi government's legitimacy. In fact, it is the reason that they're able to, you know, it is it is on, it is at Hadi's request, they claim that they are in the war in Yemen in the first place. Um, and these problems with, but they, but they don't necessarily have a problem with the STC. And I think it's important to know back in 1994, during the civil war, where the separate, the Southern uh, secessionists were trying to secede, the Saudis actually helped that side of things more than they helped Saleh. So, so they have a complicated history with Southern Yemen as well. Um, so it's not that the Saudis are pro-Hadi and anti-SDC and the UAE is pro-SDC and anti-Hadi. It's not like that at all. Um, and in fact, the Saudis are trying to play like the role of mediator or facilitator and saying, 
Hadi, you have a point. STC, you have a point. Let's try to come together. Let's figure out how to, you know, mostly we care about the Houthis. So let's like figure out how to work together against that. So that's how I would explain. And that's why I think sometimes when we talk about Saudi UAE uh, disagreements on Yemen, there's no doubt that they prioritize things differently. The Saudis have prioritized the Houthi threat. The UAE has prioritized the counterterrorism threat a bit more. Uh, there's no doubt that there's some differences, but I don't think there's a all out, you know, supporting separate sides rift kind of, I, I, I think those um, conversations are a little bit overblown. Sure. I want to bring in an actor that is often talked about in the context of the Middle East in general, which is of course the United States of America. And you've mentioned them a few times already in terms of being pro-Israel, but B in terms of just being pro-legitimacy and pro-Saudi Arabia. Generally speaking, especially in North Africa, such as in Syria, when you have US involvement in a conflict, you generally have an antithetical global powers involvement in the conflict as well, to somewhat in the meta scheme of things, just balance out the conflict. Has that happened in Yemen? Is there a countervailing force to US support for Saudi Arabia or not? Um, the war in Yemen has uh, sort of been its own thing. I'm not sure it can be compared. So the United States' role in Yemen has primarily been to support logistics for the coalition. So uh, we were doing air refueling for a while, although that stopped. We also were doing a lot of um, intelligence sharing and also helping with uh, targeting. Um, in an attempt to make sure that the targeting that the coalition was doing, you know, didn't lead to, um, uh, to try to limit the amount of mass casualty and, you know, these sorts of things that you try to avoid in war. And so the U.S. perspective has been that we are making the Saudis better and therefore limiting the damage from the war. Now, there's a whole set of people that disagree with that in the Biden campaign um, potentially the Biden administration, if he wins the election, has a very different view on that. And so I think that's important to know. But thus far, the policy under Obama and then under Trump has been to support um, to support the coalition. So that's been our primary, you know, support function. We do have, um, you know, we do still, we've carried out counterterrorism operations in Yemen for a long time, unrelated to this war and unrelated to this war. We, we continue to do that. And of course the UAE is involved more now, as, as I mentioned before. Um, so that's another way that we, you know, are involved in Yemen, but the United States primarily, especially under the Trump administration really sees Yemen through an Iran lens. So the things we care about from a national security perspective, what the U S government cares about in Yemen is that they're the, Babo Mendeb in the Red Sea, where uh, a lot of global trade, it's something like 30% or 25%, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a, a lot of the, the world's trade goes through um, the Red Sea. And so if, so for a while, the Houthis were sending missiles and or rockets into the, the Red Sea, and that was a concern for global shipping. And the same way that piracy was a concern, you know, a couple of years ago, people will remember. So that's like one national security concern is the threat to the potential threat to global shipping. Second concern is terrorism, which we've talked about. And then the third would be the perspective that Iran is involved uh, in Yemen, and they are involved with supporting the Houthis and providing um, missiles that are actually capable of targeting the Saudis, right? So if the Houthis, so the Houth, the source of the Houthis' power is not Iran. The Houth, if Iran disappeared tomorrow, the Houthis would still control Sana. And I think that's really important to remember. And most of their money comes from, uh, from actually running the government, where they collect taxes and. Um, uh, they also have a lot of checkpoints and shakedowns and all kinds of things. So they have all sorts of ways that they make money. Uh, oh, and by the way, Iran every now and then gives them some free oil that they can sell in the black market and make some money too. But but they're, the source of their power is not Iran. But really, really critically, Iran has provided them with missiles and the 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 training in order to make their own missiles that can target deep inside Saudi Arabia. That's something the Houthis could not have done on their own. 
And that has, of course, a, a, a bigger threat to Saudi Arabia is because there are friends in the region, the United States cares that, you know, the Iranians have a group that, that the Iranians are supplying a group that is targeting the Saudi homeland is a concern for us. So those, that's how I would like sort of characterize the U.S. concerns in Yemen. All right. Um, the last two large actors or stakeholders that I want to talk about are actually, well, they are outwardly nonpartisan stakeholders in the conflict. One is, of course, the United Nations, because they claim that they, there is a legitimate government in the Hadi government, and they stake a claim that the Hadi government should regain control of Yemen. But the other is the Gulf Cooperation Council and the GCC, which has, it's economically excluded Yemen from the sounds of it, from joining the GCC. But what role did such bipartisan organizations, both the GCC and maybe even the OPEC and the UN, have to play in probably just dampening down the conflict in Yemen more than perhaps resolving it entirely? Well, so the UN and the GCC have very different roles, so I'll explain each. So with the UN, there's a special envoy appointed to Yemen who's supposed to talk to all the different parties and try to get them to come to peace talks. And then the parties themselves are supposed to, you know, end the war and come to some sort of peace agreement. And this is the system, you know, across the world. There's a special envoy for Libya, et cetera. And so Martin Griffiths is the UN special envoy for Yemen. And so he spends all of his days... Uh, meeting with all of the parties in Yemen, not just the Hadi government and the Houthis, although primarily them, but also lots of other stakeholders who could be spoilers, who um, whose support is necessary for any sort of political agreement. He meets with women's groups, he meets with youth groups, he um, and he's also for any of the agree- agreements that they have come to. So, for example, there's an agreement on prisoner releases. So, in addition to him trying to get the two parties to agree to come to the table. He also is whatever they have already agreed to, like smaller initiatives like prisoner releases, he's also managing those. So that's, you know, what the UN, that's what the UN sort of special envoys office does. Uh, And so last week there was a massive prisoner release and that was in large part the work of not only the UN, but also the ICRC, the Red Cross um, and Red Crescent. So so that I would say is sort of that that role. And his primary goal, like I said, is to get the Hadi government and the Houthis to sit down and then work out an agreement. And he wrote an op-ed a while ago, but it basically said, we all know what the answer is to Yemen. We just need to sit down and sign the document. Um, and that's actually unlike Syria and other conflicts where even the answer itself is not known. In Yemen, there's a basic, there's a broad agreement between the Hadi government and the Houthis about what a transition plan looks like. They sort of came to terms with it in 2016 during peace talks, but it just hasn't actually happened. And right now the UN is trying to get a ceasefire uh, brokered first. And then once there's a ceasefire, then we can all sit down and talk. That's sort of the idea. So that's the UN. On the GCC, so the GCC is split right now because the Qataris, uh, you have the Qataris on one side and you've got the UAE, Saudi, and Bahrain on the other. Um, And the UAE, Saudis, and Bahrainis are opposed to uh, some of Qatar's policies in the region. And without getting into too much detail, there's a rift between them that started in 2014, was patched up a little bit, and then reopened and exploded into a much bigger rift in 2017. And so the Qataris were actually part of the coalition in the war in Yemen, part of the Saudi-led coalition prior to 2017. Um, But when the rift happened, they left Yemen uh, and have sort of been you know, uh, officially on the sidelines ever since. There's there's rumors about their involvement, but officially they're on the sidelines. And so the GCC as an entity, you know, in addition, the Omanis who are part of the GCC are neutral on the war. And in fact, they host the Houthi negotiators in Muscat. Um, and so, so the GCC is not a unified body right now. And therefore I don't think is... Um, is able to to ha- play the role that they did, for example, in 2011, 2012, when they negotiated the agreement to have Salah step down. All right. And again, given the Yemen matrix and the way you've charted relationships in the Yemen matrix, 
coming to bilateral consensus on each of these relationships would mean brokering 132 relationships that is excluding other actors that have not been accounted for. What is the role then of multilateral talks, such as the one, such as the national dialogue that happened in 2012 and 2013, as compared to, say, bilateral talks that are currently happening, such as in the Stockholm Agreement? Which one is more effective in the case of Yemen and which one is more necessary? You make a great point. So, uh, first of all, to clarify, there's only 66 relationships, so half as many because they're all repeated. Right. So Hadi Houthi is the same as Houthi Hadi. So you can feel better that we're only talking about 66 instead of 132. But I think, honestly, um, you know, and out of those 66, I think around half, just under half are red relationships, meaning they're adversarial or unfavorable. Um, and, and so let's say that's, say, 30 or so relationships. I don't think you need to suddenly just I don't think the answer to Yemen is to suddenly make everybody friends. I don't think that's possible even. Um, the, you know, and, and nor would that be the answer in any country. But what you do want to do is get them to agree to work together under some sort of system where, you know, I mean, in the transitional plan for Yemen, the idea is to have elections, right? So if the Houthis want to claim that they are a very popular group and that Yemenis want them to run the government, well, then let's have an election and let's let's prove that, right? So that's the sort of idea, is that it's not necessarily to get everybody to like each other, but it is to get everybody to agree to work within a system uh, where their power is commensurate with their, you know, what the people want sort of thing. So, so I think that that's the sort of goal. In terms of the the two ideas that you talked about, you know, something like the Stockholm Agreement or the Riyadh Agreement even, you know, these are agreements, one brokered by the UN, one brokered by the Saudis. Um, you know, they've been agreed to, but then they've been very, very difficult to implement. Uh, and there's a whole series of reasons for why that's the case. Primarily, they're very vague agreements. I mean, if you as an outsider just read it today, you would you would know just by reading it. I mean, there are three and four page agreements, right? Like these are not these are not tomes that explain all the details. This group will move here, and then an hour later, this group will move there. Like it's not that detailed. And so, what ends up happening is you get into these kind of you both sign the agreement, and then afterwards you disagree about what the agreement says, and so it stalemates. And so that's been a real problem in Yemen. And the UN Special Envoy is like aware of this, knows this, you know, this is not lost upon anyone who's working on this portfolio. Um, the sort of more, I don't know if multilateral is the right word, but the, the kind of more collective uh, way of thinking about things like a national dialogue. So national dialogues have happened in Yemen's history many times, not just the sort of famous one from 2012, but there have been others as well. And this sort of, um, you know, bring all these groups together and build consensus and have committees. And, you know, it's something that Yemenis have done many times before. Uh, and, you know, it can be quite effective. And there's a lot of people in Yemen that think that's what needs to happen again, is once you have some sort of transitional government where you agree, say, the, the Hadi government, the Houthis agree to some sort of transitional presidency of five people or, or something. So everybody gets, you know, say that you need to have you need to bring the national dialogues back in some form or another there were some problems in the national dialogues and you know um, nothing is perfect but there is sort of this um uh this notion that that's one way to to kind of get some answers for going forward and i'll, I'll just add one other thought which is you know um when yemenis talk with each other things get done oftentimes. So what is extraordinary in Yemen is that you'll see, say, prisoner release negotiations between the Houthis and Al-Qaeda. There are no two groups. I don't have Al-Qaeda on the matrix because it would have basically been X's all the way across, which is not very helpful. Um, every group in Yemen claims they hate Al-Qaeda. So that, you know, it doesn't, um, for a relationship chart, it wouldn't add much. But, but the, uh, but, you know, the Houthis and Al-Qaeda, you can't get much of a worse, you know, relationship. And they do prison releases. 
you know, the Houthis and Islam make agreements, you know, they're, they're parties that are adversaries can get a deal done if they talk to each other. And part of the, the recent prisoner release came from Yemenis sitting across the table and actually talking to each other, yelling at each other and then talking and then yelling and then talking. And like, that's how it gets done. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a series of people who argue maybe some of the foreign actors should step out more and allow Yemenis to kind of solve the conflict. Others suggest you need more mediation. And there is an ongoing debate about sort of what the quote unquote right way uh, to get to peace might be. So clearly there is no agreed on right way to solve the conflict. And you've mentioned that there have been stalemates, both, both the Riyadh Agreement and the Stockholm Agreement. What, in your opinion, needs to give way for us to expedite a solution process or a peace-building process in Yemen? Well, I think it all comes down to incentives and motives. So, you know, we all, uh, which sounds maybe oversimplified, but, you know, it's a little bit like a chess game where you have to line things up so that, you know, no matter what happens, people are incentivized to, uh, you know, make peace with each other. And there just hasn't been, there have been moments in time that must just be so frustrating for the UN, right? There have been moments in time that one party is totally incentivized to sit at the table and the other isn't. And, and you know, this is the nature of war. It's like, if one is winning, you want to sit at the table when you're winning and the loser doesn't want to come to the table when they're losing. And then if it swaps, then you, then it swaps, the, you know, then the other group says, okay, we'll come to the table and the first group won't. And so this is one of the, the tricky parts is really creating a system of incentives. And this is something the UN thinks about a lot, um, as well as I'm sure the Saudis who are doing a lot of negotiations and talks um, in Yemen. Um, I have written a paper suggesting that, you know, all of the regional actors in Yemen sort of coordinate with each other, right? Because you do have the UAE who has the ear of the STC, you have the Saudis who have the ear of Hadi, you have the Omanis who have the ear of the Houthis, that's not to say they support them, it's a very different type of relationship, um, et cetera. And, and maybe there's some, you know, uh, there's some cross-pollination that's happening that's, 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 that could either be more helpful or is less helpful. And so I, I think there might need to be a real focus on um, creating, you know, the incentives for each group are going to be different. What they all want is different. So trying to kind of get the Rubik's Cube just lined up just right so that everybody, you know, gets what they need. I think that's, that's really tricky. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is political will. I mean, everybody knows, broadly speaking, the answer the Houthis just have to decide that they want to do it. The Saudis have to decide they want to leave the war. The Hadi government has to decide that they are willing to make certain compromises. I mean, everybody just has to have the political will to actually do it and all at the same time. All right. That's, I think, probably the single best hour-long explanation of the conflict in a nutshell that I could have ever hoped for. Just lastly, before I let you go, would you have Thank any you. recommendations of books or media that people can refer to or access in order to better understand the conflict today? Oh gosh, there's so many people. Uh, so there's, um, there's so many folks. I think it would be uh, unfair of me if I listed some and did, I feel like it's an Oscar speech where you, you, you can't forget to list, you know, like you, after you walk off stage, you're like, Oh, I should have said so-and-so and I should have said so-and-so. There's, there's some really phenomenal uh, work being, being done on Yemen. Um, the crisis group has some great work. Uh, we have a couple of people who do Yemen work. We're publishing a bunch of things through the FICRA Forum, which is something through the Washington Institute that publishes Yemen Voices. I think the UN uh, Special Envoy's Office is worth watching closely on Twitter and on you know, the UN uh, website where, where he publishes stuff. I think the UN panel of experts reports are well worth reading. I mean, they're very extensive. If you want to really understand, you know, some of the pieces and parts, there's also a think tank called the Sana Center do, that does specifically work on Yemen. Relief Web has great data. Um, I could, gosh, I could just go on. There's, there's, but anyone who's listening that, you know, 
Um, I post all the stuff I think is good on Twitter. So you, if you want to follow me for a little while, you might start seeing the kinds of things that um, that collectively all of us that cover Yemen post. Uh, but I do want to say the wonderful thing about doing Yemen is that a Yemenis, broadly speaking, are the nicest people in the world. And second of all, the people who cover Yemen and have been covering Yemen for a long time are just the most gracious, you know, it isn't this sort of competitive, turfy sort of uh, environment. I don't know if it's like that on other portfolios, but folks that cover Yemen, you know, uh, we're, we're all just trying to help each other, you know, and help figure out the way to push things forward. Um, and so it's just a wonderful, wonderful country. And I, I'm so glad that you're bringing attention to it. I, I hope people will, will listen and, and take something from this. Well, thank you so much. And I would highly recommend following Elena on Twitter because it's an incredibly useful source of information about what's going on in Yemen today. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible conversation and hugely, hugely informative. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 